You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Howdy, music lovers. Welcome to Modern Musicology. I am author and drummer, Alan Seiler. I almost forgot who I am. <laughs> Alan Seiler. And guess what? This week, it is me, along with singer, songwriter, and fellow drummer, Stephanie Seymour. Hello, everybody. The drummers are taking over. Why aren't we doing a drummer episode? I don't know. I mean, oh, well, it's because this is a little last minute that it's just us. Two. Well, that is very true. Yeah. So I think, you know, we've had shows with lots of different combinations of our typical four yeah. co-hosts, but this is the first time you and I have done one, isn't it? Yeah, I, it might be because I did one alone with Rob. Yeah. And I don't think I ever did one alone with Anthony, but no, I don't think we've ever done one, Alan. Yeah. You and you and Rob did one. I, I did a couple of them with Rob. Yeah. And so, with Anthony did a few, right? Yeah, did a, yeah, that's right. So this is this is our first time, just the two of us. We're making history. We are <laughs> right. <laughs> and this week we are talking about the relatively recent documentary Immediate Family, which kind of talks about the career and lives of four studio musicians, Leland Sklar, Russ Kunkel, Danny Korchmar, and Wadi Wattel. And this is one that we saw the trailer for sometime, you know, kind of late last year. Mm -hmm. And both you and I were like, oh, my God, yes, we have to talk about yeah. this. I know. <laughs> Definitely. It was something that piqued our interest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I don't know about you, but I these four guys I have been aware of for most all of my musical life, like mm -hmm. as long as I've been really aware of and paying attention to and following like liner notes and things like that on, on records. Mm -hmm. These four guys I have been aware of forever. Okay. So that is interesting because I was always aware, I would say of Wadi more because of just because of seeing him with Stevie Nicks, mm -hmm. I'm such a huge Stevie fan. So I remember seeing him in videos and, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. The other guys, I really didn't know that much about. I mean, not that I didn't know them, but it, was, it wasn't like to me, I knew more about the Wrecking Crew kind of guys, even mm -hmm. though, as they mentioned in this movie, the Wrecking Crew didn't get as much recognition, at least back then, because their, their names weren't on the, the backs of the albums. Yes, that's true. I mean, I think that they were saying that Peter, was it Peter Asher? That was basically the one that kind of started that you know, putting then putting the names on the album jackets so that people could see who was playing. Right. And I thought that was so interesting because that's something that I had not known before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that I mean, I'm, I've been kind of a follower of Peter Asher for a long time. And that was that was a little detail that I hadn't heard before. That's super yeah. interesting. I know. I know. And that, that's really cool because. Those guys then all got the credit they should get, you know, and they became as they were saying in the film they sort of were were becoming known in their own right. You know, like they, when they were playing along with James Taylor, for example, mm -hmm. there was like the guys in the front were like with signs for them, you know? <laughs> right, right. And 
these guys worked a lot more during the time of like music videos and things like that. And, yes. and a lot more concert films. And I think that they, even if they weren't credited on records in liner notes, I think that we would have known more about these guys than the wrecking crew anyway, simply because of the time in which they were most active. Yeah. And another interesting thing that I, that I wasn't, as much aware of, I guess, about the Wrecking Crew is that they didn't really go out on tour as much. They were always worried yeah. about their gig in the studio. These guys were actually going out on the road and they weren't as worried, you know, about not having a gig to come back to. So they were mm -hmm. in front of live audiences. They were part of James Taylor's band. They were part of, there were Linda Ronstadt's band. They, you know, they're really huge names. Yes. And, and again, you know, getting that recognition on stage too. People knew what they looked like, People, mm -hmm. you know, could put a name to a face. Yeah, exactly. So as we were kind of coming into our discussion, I was trying to trace back my first exposure to each one of these guys. So mm -hmm. I was trying to like find where I first got to know these guys and I've got three of them pegged. Okay. And Lee, Lee Sklar, I honestly don't know where I first saw him mm -hmm. or where I became aware of who he is, even though I know I've seen him and seen his name on a million records or videos or concert yeah. films or whatever. I don't know where it was that I first encountered him, yeah. but the other three, I know exactly where. Okay. Tell me. So 19. 80, I think it was, there was a concert film. It was Linda Ronstad and she was on the Mad Love tour. Oh yeah. Which yep. that is my favorite Linda Ronstad album. Wow. Okay, cool. I love it so much. And part of that comes from, you know, I'd been aware of Linda for ever before that, but part of that comes from having discovered that concert film on HBO or whatever it was on. Mm -hmm. At that time, back in 1980, and I was at that point, like 1980 was a big turning point for me musically. That was where I really started to just absorb everything. Yeah. And I would watch, I would consume anything that came in my path and was watching this concert film. And I saw it like maybe four or five, six times on HBO. And Danny Korchmar ah. is right there on guitar and you know, what's interesting is Russ Kunkel was on drums too, but for some reason he didn't really stand out as much. He didn't make the same impression on me, oddly mm -hmm. enough, being a drummer as <laughs> Danny did. And there was something about him that I was like, just kind of drawn to him. And that's my first time really being aware of Danny Korchmar yeah. and the other two, Waddy and Russ, of course, were from Stevie Nicks. Yes. That's what I was going to say. They both played on the Belladonna album and they were both in the touring band on the Belladonna tour. So yes. that concert film from the Belladonna shows, that's where I first really became aware of Wadi Watel and Russ Kunkel. Yeah. Yeah. So I've got three of the four of them pegged. Yeah. Wadi was definitely, I know him because of Stevie Nicks. It's, it's, I can't remember which video specifically, but I just remember that hair. <laughs> yeah, you can't mistake that hair. You can't mistake the hair. And then I, I re recall, you know, seeing him in a, a, you know, oh, that's that guy again. Oh, that's like playing with other people. So I was like, mm -hmm. wow, he's everywhere. <laughs> yeah. And the others I don't specifically recall. I, I had, I hate to say it, but I don't have a specific <laughs> memory of, of them. But, you know, it's funny one watching the, 
film and seeing all that old footage, you do recognize. I mean, definitely like uh, I'll call him Cooch because that's what they call him in, in the movie. <laughs> right. Danny Korshmer. You know, he's very recognizable to me, at least to me. So I, I was like, oh, yeah, it's that guy. But just mm-hmm. the name to the face, I wasn't wasn't really aware right away. Mm hmm. And maybe it was that he just had that cool lead guitar look, mm-hmm. you know, and, and maybe that's why he stood out to me in Linda's band. I don't know, but yeah. she had a she had a killer band on that tour and played, I don't know, half of that, at, at least half, if not more of the Mad Love album, plus a bunch of greatest hits. And mm-hmm. it was just a, an amazing concert. If you have not seen it, I suggest you watch it because i'm gonna watch it. Yeah. i don't know where you can find it now but it's it's got to be out there somewhere it, youtube if nothing else exactly <laughs> <laughs> you can find anything on youtube yeah, basically it was so interesting to me how these guys all kind of came together in the late 60s i guess or mid to late mm-hmm. 60s and you know through through various avenues all became tight and all became you know Basically, I think they they seem to be the the cream of the crop, right? For for these for these musicians like James Taylor and Carol King, Carol King, yeah, playing when they were when Carol was playing with on the Sweet Baby James tour, yeah, and then she got signed by Peter Asher. And when they they were telling the story of they they cut ta- tapestry in three weeks with no overdubs, and Cooch was playing guitar on that album. That was just incredible to me, right. And then he met Waddy when they played on the Tim Curry album. Tim Curry. <laughs> Tim Curry. <laughs> you know? So they met up like that. And, you know, it was just, it was really neat to to just see how they all got together and then f- obviously formed their own band after mm-hmm. a while. But what's so interesting is that there are so many other names in the studio musician world that all kind of swim around the same pool with these four guys, but somehow these four guys became this unit. Yes. Like Steve Postel. I mean, he's 10 years younger than these guys, but I mean, and he looked up to them and basically, like he was saying, he played exactly what Cooch was playing and learned to, to play because of him and, you know, practice Mm -hmm. become so amazing. But yeah, the, these guys were all playing at the top of their game and playing with the best of the best. Yeah. You know, when you go and and watch Lee Sklar, mm-hmm. what a phenomenal bass player he is. Yeah. And and the thing about all four of these guys is that they can play just any style, any texture and fit no matter who it is that's hired them to do a thing. Yeah. They just they get it. They fit right in and that's what it is to be like on that level of musicianship. Definitely. Not a lot of people can do that, can do that session job kind of thing where you just come in, they they tell you what they want you to do, and you just do it, and you that's know right. how to do it. And that's, that's, right. a, that's a rare thing. On that point, one thing that I learned that Wadi was is especially known for is the rhythm guitar playing that he does. They said, you know, like nobody can hold a totally solid, you know, riff like he can. Mm-hmm. So if you think about Stevie Nicks, Edge of 17, like that, he's just doing that. And then it was, they were talking about how his, like, you know, the hand was going to fall off because he was just, just doing that for so long for that song. And then he's also, you know, he'll just go off on these amazing solos, like, Remember, they were talking about Steve Perry's Oh Sherry. Oh, yeah. And the, the solo for that song. That was a really funny story. That was so funny. That was um, great. Yeah. Because <laughs> they wanted they wanted something totally different. 
Yeah. They wanted, and, he, and not even on a guitar, but on harmonica or something. I don't yeah. remember, but he's like, no, 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 this is what's going to happen on this record. I'm going to do it and it's going to be perfect. And it was. No, <laughs> no, it's so great. But yeah, they, so they could do, they can do because these guys still play. They can do pretty much what anybody needs them to do. Mm-hmm. I thought a hilarious story was the Warren Zevon track, Werewolves in London. Oh my gosh. Which, by the way, I did not know Mick Fleetwood and John McVie played on too. Yes. That was yes. really cool to, to learn. And Jackson Brown. And Jackson but, Brown produced it. Yeah. So right. Waddy was playing guitar on that. And it was so funny how they were talking about how he was talking about when they were just like, take 10, take 15. They're the, uh, they went up to like 60 takes and Waddy's like, listen, we've got it on take two. And they went back yeah. to take two and used take two of that song. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's a similar story. This is totally off the topic, but there's a similar story with Pearl Jam where even flow, they, the, the two guys that wrote it, one of them had a very clear idea of what he wanted the record to sound like. And they did take after take after take <laughs> until they did 50 takes oh. till the guy was so frustrated that he just got so angry and just stormed out of the studio because it wasn't working out the way that they were doing it. And they could, they just couldn't get it any closer to what he wanted. And they said, look, let's just randomly pick a take and that's going to be on the record. And so even flow is just a random selection wow. from 50 takes. I want to know, and this is the same with werewolves. I want to know what the differences are in all these different takes. Like I know. it's got to be something so minute. It has to know? be because if you, if you heard the takes of werewolves, they, they kept playing different ones and yeah. it sounded the exact same. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Cause you know, John, I mean, think of John McVie, Mick Fleawood. These guys are like, they're like machines, you know, mm -hmm. they're. <laughs> and uh, yeah, they all are. They're all, they all play at such a high proficiency. How yeah. much difference can there possibly <laughs> be between all these takes? I mean, that's. It's and it's just, just blows between, me. it's like feel, you know, that's what they were probably right. going for. Like, what's the best feel? But it ended up being take two out of 60. <laughs> right. <laughs> going back to them all being together, I, I think the four of them finally played together on Carol King's Thoroughbred album, which was 72. Mm -hmm. If I remember from the, I think mm -hmm. that was the first one. But, yeah. and, I, and then I was like trying to make a list of all these all the players and songs that they were playing. And it's really impossible. I mean, they've, they've played with oh, everyone from Jackson Brown God. to Joni Mitchell to Bill right. Withers, Crosby, Stills and Nash, Eagles, Randy Newman. I mean, how, Hall and Oates, like, yeah. How can you eat? Their credits are endless. Oh my gosh. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of artists. I mean, I was going through their wiki pages just to look at lists of discography, you know, just yeah. things that they had played on. And I mean, you just scroll and scroll and scroll and it's yeah. insane. And there's artists that I've never heard of that they have played on. And for like Lee Sklar, he has played mm -hmm. with jazz artists, with country artists, with Christian artists. He is everywhere. Yeah. I was struck by him really in the film. He's so calm and actually really almost reserved and shy. And yeah. that he gets up there and he just blasts out the bass. It's, it's just incredible. I don't know if you notice this, but mm. the, the times that they show him like now playing bass parts that he recorded way back when or whatever, he's using this bass that has this weird neck. 
it's kind of skewed, you know, where the, where the frets aren't like completely parallel with each other. They kind of go at an angle. It's very weird. I didn't notice that at all. No, I have to, now I have to go back and watch it. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Or get a picture of that. Right. And I was like, who, who made that base? Why? And <laughs> right. Is it specific for him? Right. What did he That's what I'm wondering. Modified? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Well, I'll have to Google that. <laughs> <laughs> and I kept staring at it. It kept distracting me. I was like, is that really what I'm seeing? Or is it just like the camera's at a strange angle and it's an optical yeah. illusion? No, no, I think it's really that kind of base. That's so cool. All right. I have to check that out. You're like you're saying the wiki page and the 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 amount of people they were playing was is really incredible, but I love the little I just love the little anecdotal stories in the film like mm-hmm. when they were I guess they were trying to get into the they were all going to the troubadour it was like seventy two or something like that and they want and Linda Ronstadt was with them and they couldn't get in she couldn't get in I guess they she didn't have ID and she looked oh, probably right. twelve years old and. And they were like, just sing something for them. And she sung a little bit of Blue Bayou. And they're like, go on, get inside. (laughs) That's so funny. (laughs) I know. There were so many cute stories like that. And and then, you know, I mean, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead too early into the 80s, but it was interesting also that they all went on to do a lot of things in the 80s. I guess the most notable to me was Cooch and Don Henley. Oh yeah, yeah. I guess he he really was the one to to push Don Henley to go to do a solo album. Don Henley right. was saying he really had no intention of doing anything like that. Right. I thought that was really interesting because it seems like such a natural thing, you know, when Eagles are doing whatever and they're maybe on a break or whatever and you want it just seems like such a natural thing for Don Henley to be a solo artist. Yeah. And and it was it was interesting because they were talking about you know the the transition of the sounds of the music and the synths coming more into play and yeah you know some of the guys became producers and stuff but really yeah like Hootrelly encouraged Don to make the song this the album I'm sorry all she wants to do is dance or is that the song or is that the that's album that's the song that's the song the What's album is album? building the perfect beast oh, okay okay <laughs> right and dirty laundry's on that right 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 yeah and he had that. Great Farfisa song sound on the song. That was a really cool thing too that he was talking about how he had like had that idea to do that. Yeah, and Danny really was a true like collaborator, like mm-hmm. equal footing with Don because they co-wrote most of the album. Danny wrote all she wants to do is dance, and yeah. you know there's a, there's tracks on some of Don's other albums that are Korchmar written. And, yeah. and it's so interesting, you know, what you're saying about Don not even considering a solo mm. career and, and Danny's like, look, let's do this and, and look at the success that he had with a solo career that he didn't even intend to start. I know. It's, it's just, incredible. it's amazing. Yeah. It really I mean, is. What would, he, what would he have done? Just sit around? I doubt it. I mean, he probably would have gone on to do something. I'm like sure he would have at some point. But. At some point, but really, just the in, the motivation, I guess that that Danny provided was yeah. was what he needed at the time. So that was really neat to to learn about. And also, Russ being such a producer, like doing, I think he said he did six albums with Jimmy Buffett. Yes, and a lot of other people too. But I mean, just he just got really into producing. 
And mm-hmm. Lee went on to play with like Phil Collins and Lyle Lovett. Yeah. And Russ was playing with Lyle too. Yeah. I think those Phil Collins records are the place where people would most think of Lee Sklar. Maybe. Because yeah. those bass lines on some of those things are are just insane. Mm-hmm. And he's got such a distinct feel. And there's like there's like almost a funk that that he gets in his playing yeah. that really elevates those. I mean, I'm not a big Phil Collins fan, but I think that Lee's playing really elevates a lot of those tunes to a real next level yes. kind of situation. Yeah, definitely. I was also interested in in Steve Postel's story. So he, you know, he was like I said, about ten years younger than that than the band. Mm-hmm. And or not, I say the band, but because they are the immediate <laughs> they, family band, <laughs> they are a band. That's right. <laughs> yeah, just his his fascination with them, and then I mean, God, can you imagine like your your dream? You know, it would be like me decide getting to be in Gina Shock's band or something like that. It's like he's in this band with all his idols of all mm-hmm. time. <laughs> I know that's amazing. Yeah. It's like me getting to play on a Stephanie Seymour record. <laughs> like you did. <laughs> well, or like you, you played live. <laughs> I did, yes. And maybe the record. Yes, that would be cool. <laughs> <laughs> the next record. <laughs> Just give me a call. I'm, I'm on call anytime you need me. I know somebody with a studio. I can go in and cut my in no time. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> but anyway, yes, Steve has had a, had a, real kind of fairy tale story i think with that yeah yeah it's just like those guys who like sing in a cover band in a tribute band and then whatever band it is their singer quits and they call the guy up and like hey we've heard you sing in this tribute band come be our new lead singer exactly <laughs> kind of reminds me or like the of traveling wilburys when like tom petty must have been like who what the hell i'm in a band with like harrison and roy orbison yeah yeah, that's true because you know, no matter who you are, no matter what level of of fame or notoriety you get to, you never lose that sense of these are the people that inspired me that I looked up to when I was, you yeah. know, developing as a musician. Yeah. And you know, just look at that band that he was in. Holy cow. I know. <laughs> Which, you know, for anybody who hasn't listened to last week's episode, number 102, the one about the Beatles covers, we have on our Spotify playlist, we have you and Bob doing your Traveling Wilburys cover. Oh, yes. Handle with care. That's right. Thanks for putting it on there. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it sounds so good. Yeah, that was a good one. That was a good Losers Lounge show. Yep. Thank you. We were talking about Waddy and how we kind of know him from Stevie. You know, he, I I think that Stevie, when she and Lindsay were doing the Buckingham Knicks album. Yes. He was just like hired. They're just like, you know, come, we we need a guitarist. Come play on this record. That's that's right. That's how he met Stevie and Lindsay. And they became super tight. And to the point where Waddy has been on every Stevie album, every Stevie tour. And I just remembered this afternoon that he also plays on Dolly Parton's Rockstar album because oh. they they did that song that Stevie had written years ago, like back around the time of rumors or whatever mm-hmm. that had never been recorded. And it's called What Has Rock and Roll Ever Done For You? 
and she and Dolly do it on the Rockstar album, and Waddy plays guitar on it. <laughs> yeah. So even to the point of I'm doing a guest spot on a Dolly Parton album, I, I have to have Waddy with me. <laughs> right. It, exactly. Stevie has to have. Well, it is true. I mean, he is really sort of omnipresent in her in in all of her music, yeah. solo music at least. I don't know. Did did he did he ever end up playing on a Fleetwood Mac album? I'll, I would have he, to. He did. He did one track on on the first Fleetwood Mac album that Lindsay and Stevie were on. He played guitar on one of Christine's songs, Sugar Daddy. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would kind of assume that he would have done more. But I guess I mean, well, you know, with Lindsay and the band, you probably didn't need that. But oh, exactly. (laughs) You know, (laughs) for a few reasons, (laughs) probably like ego. What's really interesting is that when they're doing Buckingham Knicks, mm. that they even hired a guitar player because yeah. I'm sure, why wouldn't Lindsay have wanted to do every guitar part by himself? I don't know. But at that point, if you think about it, they were not, they didn't have the clout that they did. No, after. they didn't have clout at all. But Lindsay had that ego. He did. I'm sure he did. He really had it and since that, he was five. Yeah. And that ownership of his own material right. and that protectiveness of his role in any project that he's in. Yeah. Not to say he's a control freak, but maybe their producer, I don't really know, but I'm just I would like to look into that more, but maybe there someone suggested that as a as a yeah. hard suggestion, you know. <laughs> yeah, the album was produced by Keith Olsen and Wadi and and Keith had already worked together. They sort of had a mm-hmm. like he was sort of a go-to for for Keith Olsen. Yeah. And that's a great album too. That Buckingham Knicks album. Yes, smokes. It is so good. Like they, you know, and the stuff that ended up on their first Fleetwood Mac album was the stuff that they had written for the second Buckingham Knicks album. Yeah. So I think that they would have broken out whether they had joined Fleetwood Mac or not. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, I'm glad they joined Fleetwood Mac because I think altogether those guys were magic as as those five pieces of, you know, the puzzle. But yeah, I think you're right because the songs are so strong. They probably yeah. would have had a hit on their own if they if it was just them. Yeah. I, I want to talk about Carol King and James Taylor. Mm-hmm. They did, they put out a live album in 2010 called Live at the Troubadour. Yep. So this is them basically going back to their roots, like back to where they really started as singer songwriters and performers. And this album, the, the the show was 2007, if I remember right, but the album came out in 2010, and it was okay. a really big deal release. They they put out a concert film, and the 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 record was really good. The band was just Carol and James plus Danny Korchmar, Lee Sklar, and Russ Kunkel, yep. just those five people, and it is such a great performance. Yeah, that's basically where they all kind of came back together after yeah. going separate ways and doing different projects. You know, that was a big kind of reunion in a way. Yeah. They were showing footage from that too, which I was like, I think I've seen that, but I want to see that again, you know? Mm-hmm. Wadi didn't play on that? Wadi wasn't on that? Mm-mm. But he wasn't really involved with them back in their Troubadour days either. True. You know, he kind of came in after that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So I think this was just a a reunion of that core group of friends, you know, that were sort of on the scene back in the early 70s. 
So I know they all had a band together, you know, before Immediate Family. I guess they mm-hmm. got they had their own record deal, like what was it, 77 or something like that? I can't, I'm mm-hmm. looking at my notes here. But was that, was the, when did the Immediate Family, yes, it was 1977. They got a deal because of Peter Asher. So they did three like instrumental rock kind of fusion albums, but. Oh yeah. And that was under the band name. Section. Um, the section. Yes, exactly. I, I've meant to go and, and look that up and see if I, cause I've never heard any of that stuff and I'm super yeah. interested in it now. Yeah. I never heard it, heard it either. And I'm one, but I'm wondering if that James Taylor and Carol King show in 2007 was the beginning of immediate family. Was yeah, is that maybe, you know, I don't really know when that started, but yeah, they, they, they were doing tours where they're just playing all these incredibly huge famous songs that they were a part of that you know yeah a lot of people may not realize how key these guys were how integral they were to so many of these recordings you know like you go back and look at i mean some of the things that they recorded are legendary you know yes look at look at tapestry for god's sake no you know i mean that is like a greatest hits album all on its own because you've oh, yeah. got, I feel the earth move. It's too late. You've got a friend, Smackwater Jack. I mean, yep. it is just a list of songs so far away. Beautiful. Mm, I mean, it's crazy how that. good that album is. I know. I mean, that's kind of like running on empty. Yes. You know, cause these albums, they just had hit after hit. And even the ones that I don't know that were released as singles, like, I don't know if Beautiful was released as a single, but it's such a key Carole King song, you know, mm-hmm. it's so important in her catalog. And that whole album is, I mean, it's just, it's just one of those landmarks. That was something that I loved watching in the movie when they were, when they would just solo their part. And you would hear like this iconic, you know, drum bit or guitar solo or bass part. And you're like, oh, my God, that's like, that's the dude that played that. (laughs) You know, he came up with that. And you know it like, you you know, your own hand. You know what I mean? Like, it's like. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in the in the 70s. You know, I started really paying attention to radio in 73, 74, whatever it was. And It's Too Late is one of the, I mean, that song was everywhere. It was part of the musical landscape. And so here's Danny Korchmar just like casually playing this lead guitar part that he played on a record that became so incredibly iconic. It's really (laughs) amazing. It was. And I can't remember the song Lee started playing bass on Shoot, but I was like, whoa. (laughs) <laughs> oh darn it! I can't remember. Is that the? It was towards the end of the movie, but anyway. So when I was looking through their discographies today, I was just I just kind of pulled out some of the albums that they variously played on that I really love. Russ played on quite a few Jackson Brown albums, and we've already talked about Running on Empty, which is so great. But he yeah. also, I mean, of the, of the other ones that he played on, For Every Man is so good. Mm-hmm. Lives in the Balance is a great record. He played with Dan Fogelberg on a bunch of records. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. And sort of toward the, the middle of Dan Fogelberg's career, three albums in a row that I think are really great. Phoenix, Innocent Age, and Windows and Walls. So mm-hmm. good. And one of the big hits from from the Phoenix album is 
Hart Hotels, which has got this really great conga part, and that's Russ Kunkel. Okay. Yeah, it's really cool. And I didn't realize until this afternoon. Um, I'm not a I'm not a big follower of Bob Seeger, you know, but it turns out Russ played on most all of the later Bob Seeger albums. It's they're still billed under the Silver Bullet band, but I don't think that there was a full band behind Bob at that time. And mm-hmm. I guess they didn't have a regular drummer. And so Russ was playing drums on these later Bob Seeger albums. And one of the big hits that he played on is Like a Rock, you know, which aside from being a hit oh, yeah. single on its own, got used in every Ford truck commercial for like, <laughs> right. for like 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, somebody made some bank on that song. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think it just came to me maybe what Lee was playing. Was it maybe the bass part from Dr. My Eyes? Oh, yeah, could be. Because that, that's just so classic. Everyone played on that song or that album, I should say, the first mm-hmm. Jackson Brown al- album. Now, another, there's, I think it was Waddy only maybe who had the the Keith Richards connection when he, he played yeah. on that Take It So Hard album, yeah. which I love, I love. But I, I think that was another kind of rhythm guitar situation. Obviously, Keith would have probably played most of the lead stuff, but I mean, maybe they went back and forth, but yeah, that, that was a really good one. And also interesting to me was that he played on Betty Davis Eyes by Kim Carnes. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, that's right. You know, yeah, that's one of those that I don't think I realized until or at least didn't remember until seeing this. That's now, funny. if you think about that guitar, though, that's so classic, that lick. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's so funny because you go through their their stuff and they have played on so many things that there's lots of surprises. Yeah. That you find in their list. You're like, holy cow, I had no idea that they played on that. I know. I love to see their the stories of how they also began playing instruments. You know, like they were saying, I think when he was only five years old, Waddy saw Les Paul playing guitar. And he was yeah. like, that's what I want to do. And he started playing at, at nine years old. He started playing guitar, you know? Yeah. Like, that's a pretty yeah. cool influence to have, like, as your first <laughs> memory of a guitarist is Les Paul. <laughs> right. You know, when, when did I start playing drums? It was around sixth grade. Oh, yeah. So it had to, well, it had to be 77 because that's when I got the Kiss Love Gun album. And that's when I started kind of teaching myself what it was that Peter was doing on a drum set. And I started laying out like on my bed, I'd put out like encyclopedias and stuff. And I would use a thick <laughs> one at the bottom to sound like a, the low tom, you know, and yes, and kind of figure out what it is that he's doing. And then I got my first drum set. And it was, it was very, it was difficult to make the translation from laying out books on my bed to actually sitting behind an actual <laughs> drum set. Yeah. But, you know, eventually I got it, but you know, it, it, it always amazes me when I hear people like this, who had that inspiration at such a young age and become almost consumed by it. Like that's that they know that's what they want to do and they know they want to be great at it. And yes. I don't think I ever had that because <laughs> 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 clearly it, I never became great at it. Well, I mean, but you love it. it you know, you know, do, you loved it as soon as you, yeah, heard, you know, want and you wanted to do that. And I think, you know, that just reminded me of two people who are so proficient at their instruments or were, at such a super young age. And that's 
Tal Wilkenfeld. I mean, she was going out with Jeff, Jeff Beck trio when she was, you know, 19 or whatever it was, 18 maybe. Yeah. And also currently N- Nandy Bushnell, who can play everything from drums like an insane, you know, she sounds like she's, uh, you know, like a 40 year old guy because she can smash him so hard and like, you know, just and she's this little, little thing who started playing when she was, you know, four years old. Yeah. Um, who's only I think she's only like 12 or 13 now, but she's also not only can she play drums, you know, she can play everything she touches like it's like she's like a prince. You could see, you yeah. know, sort of a situation like that happening. So yeah. I think these guys that had to be the same thing. I mean, that you know, they're they're real prodigies almost. Mm hmm. Yeah. And you're right. Like, I certainly never, <laughs> I mean, I, I love playing drums and I, w- instead of books and encyclopedias, I used coffee cans. So I would use uh, empty, like Maxwell House cans to play drums on when I was like nine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh my gosh. But That's funny. so I knew I liked to do that, but it wasn't until, you know, 15 or so that I got the drum set. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was so shy about it though. That's that was that was mm-hmm. my big roadblock is that I was so shy and I and I didn't want to, you know, because drums are very loud instruments <laughs> and and I didn't want other people to hear me doing it. I didn't want to hear have other people listen to me trying to figure things out, mm-hmm. you know? So I was I don't know. I I was my own biggest yeah. whatever and- you call it. Whatever you call it, what do you? What's what's the thing? I don't. Your own worst enemy. <laughs> kind of, yeah. But that, I was trying, yeah, yeah. Or, so, or you know, almost I like self sabotage in a way because you don't. Want kind to of, be, yeah. yeah. So I, I could, I think I could have been a lot better had I just not had that, that the worry or the hinder. Fear. You know, like I, if yeah. I was more bold about it, if I was more, you know, didn't <laughs> give a shit about what other people thought and just did what I wanted to do because I don't know. I was, but I was just an incredibly shy kid anyway. So Right. Drums is not the, the instrument you go to if you're an incredibly shy kid. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it brought you out of your shell. So yeah, it, it took a long time for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. You can't really practice quietly. I mean, you can on a little, little practice pad or something like that. And that's what yeah. I would bring to camp with me, but mm-hmm. yeah, that's what I started doing once I joined band in sixth grade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, you know, there comes a time when you just have to do it. That's right. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for us this week. We are going to take a very quick break, and then we'll be back in thirty seconds to wrap up our episode. So don't go anywhere because we've got something that we're held over from a previous episode that we're going to get into. So stick around. Hi, this is Siri. I would never, never, ever listen to the Earth Station One podcast. Who the heck says howdy anyway? Why don't you listen to Chris Hardwick instead? I can get you his information. The Nerdist is everywhere anyway. Ha ha. That was a joke. The Earth Station One podcast. It's time to let your inner geek out to play. You can find them at www.earthstationone.com or up on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever fine podcasts are found. Peace. And we're done. All right. We are back. So a few weeks ago, we did our 100th episode and we did a whole episode dedicated to listener questions. And we got through quite a bit of them, but we had some left over that we didn't quite get to. 
As I mentioned in that episode, one of our regular listeners, Jessica from Florida, sent us five questions. So I would like to kind of do one of hers that she didn't, that we didn't get into that show. And one of the questions that she sent us is what band or artist do you want to do a deep dive on? Mm -hmm. So what do you say? Well, I picked my, my main one would be Fleetwood Mac. I would love to just like delve and also maybe just Stevie to see Stevie as a solo artist, but would love to do Fleetwood Mac. I think there's so much material there to cover. And since I just can't get enough of the Beatles, more Beatles, like anything Beatles. I know we've done quite a few episodes that are devoted to the Beatles. We might have to change the name of our show, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I was thinking about that, too. I'm a I'm a huge, huge fan of, you know, most people, when you think of Fleetwood Mac, you think of Lindsay and Stevie, and I'm a huge fan of the stuff prior to that. I know you, you love you that. Know? Yeah. I, I really do. And I know your husband, Bob, mm-hmm. also loves, especially the Bob Welch era. Yeah. Loves it. And, yeah. And I, I'm a big fan of that stuff. Yeah. So, so I, yeah, maybe we should do that sometime. Yep. Yeah. What about you? Well, some of the ones, you know, this past year... I started to do that very thing just because there were a couple of bands that I felt like were so seminal that I had never really gotten any, any time with, you know, like I just never really paid that much attention. So I started my own deep dive on their back catalog just because I wanted to know more about, you know, a couple of bands that I just thought were so important that Mm -hmm. I just, no, 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 I just never really connected with and I wanted to, and that's the Smiths and the Cure. So I had really started diving into them and, you know, I, I, I really connected a lot more with the cure. Once I started doing that, the, the Smiths, I, I like, but I don't know. I just didn't find that, that handhold on, I didn't find that, that hook. Yeah. But the, the cure, I've because really the Smiths only to, have one hook. Sorry, it's a Smith fan. Sorry. <laughs> well, that's kind of what I was thinking, but didn't want to say. Like a lot <laughs> of it just so, kind of sounded samey. I know. You know. And if you like that, it's great. But, no, I know. I love the Smiths first a couple albums. I really do. Yeah. But the, the cure, I, I really. I really started to gain an appreciation for them that I never really had before. And so I really enjoyed that. But the the other thing is every single time I hear something on the radio, I think, man, I really want to investigate that more. Who has time to do all of that? I know. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I need, I, I always say that I wish that I had like a, brain implant that you could just plug a thing into and just (laughs) download the entire history of every bit of music knowledge into because I want to know everything. And then people say, oh, sure, you say that, but then you lose the joy of discovery and blah, blah, blah. I just want to know it. I just want to know, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I just want to have access to every bit of knowledge. (laughs) And it's just, you know, just from time. It's impossible to to get everything, but I'm just I just crave knowing everything about music. Now. Well, I think but it's I, really admirable that you just went and did a deep dive on those two bands just by you know I mean, and you can just keep doing that whenever you have time. And yeah. I think that's a great. I I like to do that too. I like to yeah. You know, from this show, I've I've gone and listened to stuff that I wouldn't have listened to you know because you guys have talked about or whatever and like just think about like 
something more current like Sleepy Kitty that you both you and I both have gotten into so much right. because of, right. of Rob introducing us to them and how much right absolutely. And then just from last week, you know, we were talking about Earth, Wind, and Fire mm-hmm. because of the their cover of "Got Got to Get You Into My Life." I really want to investigate more Earth. I mean, I know yeah. a lot of Earth, Wind, and Fire, but just from the radio, you know what I mean. I would really love to know, yeah, every bit of detail about Earth, Wind, and Fire. Yeah. So maybe that'll be my next one. Next I don't project. know. <laughs> <laughs> but then it's not just listening to the music. You know, I have to know how the band came together. I have to know the, all their different lineups. I have to know details about how albums were made or how songs were written and all this. kind. You know, so it's not yeah. just a simple thing of, of listening to an album or something. Right. You know? Right. And well, then it gets overwhelming. Then you're like, yeah, they're, that's that's. Maybe you have to just say, okay, I'm just going to go check out the music and look at yeah. the liner notes, and that's all I'm going to do right now. And then, right. You know. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So thank you, Jessica, for sending that great question. So, you know, we did that one show where we did a lot of listener questions, but we'll take any listener question at any time. So if you have anything that you would like to pitch, to our co-hosts, why don't you just email us at modernmusicology1 at gmail.com or just post it somewhere, like tag us on a post, or if you find one of our posts, just respond to it and, and just throw it in there. We'd love to hear from you. Yes, we would. We will be back next week, and I think we'll be back with Rob. I'm hoping so. Mm-hmm. We will be back next week to talk about the albums of 1974. Yeah. Daddy. I'm excited about that because there is a lot of hugely significant things that happened in 1974. I know that's going to be one where we're going to have to be like, okay, we just have to go with eight or 10 favorites because it's going to be so hard to, (laughs) you know, to control ourselves. Yeah. I just felt like that was such a, such a huge kind of almost a turning point year in rock. You know, there's so much stuff that happens. Yeah. Yeah. That's going to be a good, a good discussion. I think so, too. So, everybody, join us then. We will see you soon. Everybody, take care and have a great week. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.